Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Hello, UI hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us and welcome to another episode of the Hacking UI podcast. I'm Sagi Schreiber. And I'm David Tintner. We're your hosts and with us today is an awesome, awesome guest leading the design efforts at a very well-known company. She was the third designer to join the company and has seen and led its growth to now more than 30 designers. We're going to talk about how they created a blame-free culture, developed a great hiring process, and changed the product team structure as they grew. Ladies and gents, it's our pleasure to introduce Magera Moon, Design Manager at Etsy. All right, UI hackers, let's get hacking. All right, so Magera, nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here to talk to you both. <laughs> We are very happy to have you here and we love your work at Etsy. We love Etsy as a product, so we're very eager to have you guys, like anyone of, uh, from Etsy, like be on the show and give us a little background of what's going on over there. So um, we'll start by basically, how about you tell us a bit about yourself, like, how, like just a very short bit about your background and how you got to work in Etsy. Uh, yeah, sure. So I went to school for design at UT Austin, and it was like a very, very small, tiny design department that there were only about 20 people that were in it in the program for like a span of three years. So it was very tight. You were with those three people all the time. And a lot of that work was around or like the focus was very much around like the process or the thinking behind design and like how you approach different problems and not thinking about it as far as like the application, like whether it was print or whether it was web or whatever the application, like abstracting that out of like what it means to solve a problem and what those problems are in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. So going through that program, I kept on finding myself gravitating towards solutions that were very interactive and that like had a, a conversation with a, a user. And so afterwards, I was trying to figure out where to go and was, was hearing a lot of things about San Francisco and how it's very much like the mecca of the startup world and that type of work that I was really interested in. So I did a ton of like research, applied to a ton of different startups, really just trying to get something and ended up getting a job with a small startup called Wasabe. At the time, wasabi, wasabi, yeah, and it was in two thousand and eight. 
So moved out there, joined the team. It was a very small team. I was the second designer. And it was also around the time that the financial crisis happened. So Mm. yeah, so working at Wasabi, it was very much like getting that education or that experience of like what it means to do product development, like getting your hands dirty, like being involved in that process of like, you know, you're building experiences and you have to move really, really fast. So got to work a lot. Yeah. Super, super small startup. It was about, I think 10 people Mm -hmm. at the time. So yeah, so I started doing that, fell in love with being able to be a part of that process of not only like thinking about what something should look like, but also what it feels like. So it was a lot of, yeah, just going through that process of understanding, like moving really fast, not only being able to like think about what it looked like, how the layout of the page would be, thinking about the hierarchy on the page, but also just those interactive elements and then also being able to be involved in the development of it. So doing the CSS working with the engineers, being able to like push in the other time we were using subversion, but like being very much involved in that process, which I think I was, because it was my first job, I assumed that that was just how it always was. And that was how you did product development. So yeah. So after working at Wasabi, unfortunately we had to shut our doors. So that was also a very wonderful experience to go through. Like what that what that process is like, like just being a part of like the startup world. And, you know, you talk a lot about like being in a startup and ramping up and growing really quickly, but also the other part of, for a lot of companies, that's the reality too. Like, how do you like think about like the other side of it? So after that, then I did some like freelance work, just working with a couple different companies. And then I, was actually coming out to New York with my sister for a trip. And my old boss from Wasabe reached out to me and told me, Hey, have you heard of Etsy? Would you want to go? Do you know what they do? And I'm like, yes, I know what Etsy is. It's awesome. They're like, would you ever want to work there? And at the time I was very much like, I'm going to do freelance. Like I'm going to define my own time. And I'm like, maybe I'll do freelance. And so like (laughs) on a whim, stopped by the office and got to talk to Jay Carlson, who was one of the first designers and a couple of the different product managers and Kellen and just kind of like had a very informal lunch with them. And that ended up turning into the next two or three days, I was just coming into the office and kind of having interviews, which I didn't even, it was like a very last minute thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And a month or so later, I started at Etsy full time. So that was in October of 2010. Mm-hmm. And at that time, let's see, I think I was, the only designers on the team were Randy and Jay. So I was the third Soon after I started, then we started hiring a couple more designers. But at that time, it was very much like a team of, I think, the for product development. So engineering product design was maybe under 150, 100, like somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's how I ended up at Etsy. So wait, you said there was three designers when you joined Etsy or three designers on the team? I was the third designer. Well, at the time that was working full-time at Etsy, yes. And how many are there now? Oh, man. I think I think maybe like in the 30s. Wow. 
So, yeah. So it's <laughs> talking it's about scale. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And at that time, and also it was very interesting when, when I started, because we were so small, when we talked about product, we talked about design and product management. So we were very much like that was the team, the unit within like product development. So, yeah. So to kind of set the stage, can you give us just like a average day of um, what it was like when you were that size with only three designers? Yeah. So I think like an average day. So it, Etsy, pretty much the entire time, the way that we have kind of arranged ourselves as a design team with like product development is with our product teams. So on a day-to-day basis, like everyone... And that was definitely true then. Like when I started, I sat with the team that I was working with closely. So at the time it was like on the seller side and day to day, like the team that I was working with closely was that product team. So having standups with that team, talking to everyone in IRC, like the day to day stuff was definitely focused around the product team. And then as far as how that worked as a design team within that, we would have like weekly critiques. We would have like those meetings and it was kind of like informal at that time because we were so small, we could still have like our own IRC channel where we could talk and we could like ask each other questions around design decisions. But at the time it was very much like we were so small and there was just so much coverage that it was like, I think it was even as simple as like, You know, one designer was covering seller tools and another designer was covering buyer tools. And today it's like we have 10 designers thinking about the core buyer experience. And like that's not even like talking about other buyer related features that are just like outside of that core set of features. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Definitely. So, so who makes up the product team or let's say back in these times, who made up the product team? Initially, who made up the product team? Well, so it was the product managers. So we only had Randy was kind of like the design manager or like product manager. And yeah, that was about as that was what encompassed the product team at that moment. So we're talking more, this is more of, let's say the product department then. it's We're mm-hmm. not talking about an agile team or some you're not including the developers, anything. This is just the more the product department you're talking about. Yes, 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 okay. yes. And then engineering was definitely like a major... We definitely were... We had a really... And we still do have a very amazing engineering team and culture. So that was really like a, the backbone. You guys to, have an awesome engineering blog, by the way. I read it a lot. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Everyone, like our engineering team is really, really strong. And that is a really big part of the culture at Etsy. And that has been like a huge plus and benefit and definitely part of like when we, when we talk about like design being part of it is being a complementary to that. And that a lot of like what we're doing is just trying to make sure that we're being able to help support that work too. Like thinking about our engineering team. So with such a strong engineering culture also, how do you think that it affects the design side of things compared to maybe some other companies? And, and by the way, I, like sitting down with Floris, I remember he said like the designers are coding at Etsy, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what, that's what I want to know about too. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because I think 
because of my initial experience at Wasabi before that had a very similar kind of approach where there was an expectation that if you were a designer at Etsy, that part of your role and your responsibilities was to be able to contribute or to think about your work in the context of like the final product. So like not so much that you're there and you're like, you are also thinking about initially at those initial stages of probably working in sketch or whatever program to like do some initial wireframes, some understanding of like what this feature is going to be, but that your role and your responsibility is to continue until basically you're launching, like you're there sitting next to the engineers through the whole process. And like a lot of the conversations that I would have on a day-to-day was with the engineers and the PM on the team around kind of like the work that we were doing in a very collaborative way of like, and those decisions. And yeah, like, so a big part of the responsibility for product designers at Etsy is to think about how we can, that we own like the styling and the front end of the work that we're doing as much as we can. On web, that's a lot easier. Like we have what we call a web toolkit, which basically is like a responsive CSS framework that allows us to create different components that we use across the site, across all of our different like products. And by using this, like this framework, it makes it really easy to make sure that we're creating a very consistent experience. And everyone can, so all the different designers can contribute to this CSS framework, to this toolkit. I have a lot of questions about the specifics of the of the toolkit because it sounds like you guys kind of like have this like a living environment of a style guide mm-hmm. when, you, when you say the framework mm-hmm. so I'm really interested in knowing how this works in terms of like really technical so designers are working on a product they're designing some kind of like let's say I bet it's a screen or a feature right mm-hmm. and from that they rip out the elements and then they build them in front end like HTML CSS. Mm-hmm. and upload them to this framework or like, I mean, push them to the framework. So it's ultimately having a common CSS style sheet. So like when you're working on a new feature, you don't even like, and some designers have done this depending on what the feature is and how much it's modifying an existing feature, like depending on the, the fidelity or like understanding what they're building, mm-hmm. you're mostly you can just use the existing style sheet or this framework to build out pages. Like the, the goal is that ideally you won't have to write any CSS yourself, that you will be able to use the existing styles and classes to achieve whatever layout or elements that you need to create. Like there are definitely moments where there might, you might have like a very specific component or element that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then that would require building out some custom CSS that you would then use. And that is then something that like this toolkit, like this CSS framework is definitely a living organism, right? Yeah. As we have like a lot of like the fundamental elements, a lot of the things that are core to any UI or any product that you're building for layout, for typography, for colors, for buttons. But then when there are moments where there might be an element that you need specifically for a feature. You might need to build it as like a one-off, like with custom CSS. But then let's say down the road, there's another feature that needs 
a very similar or that exact component. Like at those moments, then there's an opportunity to say like, this is a pattern. Uh-huh. Let's formally add this to our toolkit so that the next time that we need this, it is like ready to use and it's consistent across all of our different features. Okay. So the designers themselves, they, because it's always like kind of like the chicken and the egg when it comes to working on sketch and, and meanwhile using a live framework, right? I mean, it's like, what do you use first? I mean, do you probably have sketch files because here in similar web, we have like a sketch file of the style guide that we try mm-hmm. to update all the time. And plus mm-hmm. we're now working on building like this live kind of framework like you have right now. We have this kind of like live style guide that we began. It's called our sandbox. And mm-hmm. it wasn't enough because every time we updated the sketch file, we didn't yet develop the components to be inside the sandbox. And then the sandbox wasn't updated. And then it wasn't updated also with this new features that came a long way inside the code. So it's hard for us to find the single point of truth, if you will. Totally. And it's really, it's really funny that you say that. Like, so... The reality is that it's, there's never, and we're figuring this out still, like there's still like, and I, I don't know if there's, there's ever a moment where it was like, yeah, it's hard. because you want to balance making sure that things are progressing and that you're not slowing down this process while you're also trying to maintain consistency and thinking about the long term, like how do we produce the tools that are consistent while also trying to not make sure that we're, we're slowing down that process. Right. So one thing to add is that we do have, I would say that like we look at the toolkit, like our CSS framework, as really the closest thing to truth that we have. Like that should be the starting point. We also have what we call sticker sheets, which is kind of like the static version of a representation of those styles and components that a designer creates that's in Sketch or in whatever like those whatever tool that you're using to first do those like static mocks, we have that as a starting point. And there's definitely like always that blurry line of like, you might be working on something within sketch and then there is some edge case or some need that needs to modify an existing pattern or create a new pattern or component. I think that's a process that we're still like trying to like figure out the best way forward. But I, the current process I think is like, First, identifying that, like just being able to understand like, oh, well, this is a modification of an existing pattern, understanding what needs that's trying to serve that the current pattern isn't. And if that's something that would be needed for future versions or for future parts of the product, then there's usually, you know, a process of like doing a little bit more exploration on that documenting that work, getting consensus, and then folding that into our CSS framework so that it is represented in our code base. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's like a blurry line. Like there's not, there's, and I think we're still trying to figure it out, but I would say like the closest source of truth that we see is the closest thing to what our users will be seeing, which Mm -hmm. is what's in our toolkit, like in the CSS framework. Okay, so can you give us like, like, just like a rundown of how products come to be at Etsy in terms of 
when the idea first comes to mind at the i don't know who's like you know whether it's like the it's top down or bottom up like facebook i know how you guys work and then mm. from the idea how the designer takes it and then from the designer who it gets passed on to through the css framework mm-hmm. so as far as like that initial how do we decide what we're working on and who decides that We go through yearly planning or like we try to like create a roadmap for each year. Typically, it's been like at the end of the year, we'll like kind of like evaluate what we want to focus on. Like one thing there is, you know, as we've grown, as we've scaled, not only as the size of the company has grown, but also the products have grown and like our reach has grown, like our processes and especially around like planning have also grown and scaled every single year they have changed. We have never done exactly the same thing every year. There's like a loose understanding of like, yes, we do planning. Yes, we, there's like a general process, but yeah. So, but typically what we do is we identify like the key areas that we know we want to impact or like the key business metrics for each part of the product. So Thinking about buyer, what is like the key metric that we really want to move in the coming year, key seller metric, and we define that. And then from that, each team, so thinking about buyer experience as a team or seller experience as a team, takes the time to evaluate, thinking about that specific business metric, like what are the ways in which we could impact that and move that in the direction that we want to go. And who thinks about that? Who, who is the one that you say we think about and yes. who is the we? So that would be the team leads. So like the group leads for this. So, you know, for buyer experience, for seller experience, for each kind of like major group, we have a lead group product manager, engineering manager, and design manager. And so together, like, but even that is very much like, They are helping to define like, this is the metric that we want to move. These are within like the context of buyer experience for say, we know that these are the areas that we think that we could have an impact. Like if we did X specifically within the buyer experience, we could probably have an impact on this core business metric. Mm-hmm. So they first define that and then they work with like the specific product owners within buyer experience. So like for buyer experience, we have a team that's focused on checkout and we have a team that's focused on uh, more of our like search and discovery tools. So anything, anything that you interact with that helps you find an item that you're interested in or like helps give you inspiration or guides you to an item that you might be looking for. So like for that, Like it would be like going to those team and being like, we think that by like, what are some ways that we could move this metric given your domain and like your area of the product? Like what are some ways that we could help move that? And then those specific teams, you know, get together and they think through some proposals, like some directions, giving some like estimates on like, if we did X and we could potentially move the metric by this much. And then that goes through kind of like a review process then going back up. So it's a little, it's, I think I would say it's up, bottom, up again process. Okay. Like yeah. define like the, yeah, go ahead. At this point, are, are the designers and developers actually involved in estimating potential movement of metrics and, and achievements? Or this is still only on the group lead level? Oh, by the way, Great. the group lead level also, sorry, but the group lead level also you said has an engineer in there. So what is it yes. again? Yes. 
it's, okay. it's a good point. Yeah, so let's let's pause for one second. Can you kind of I'm trying to visualize the the company structure here now. Can you yes. kind of just walk us through exactly the the groups, the teams, who's on on what positions, how many people? Yeah. <laughs> so within Etsy, we have kind of like larger areas of the product experience. So at like a super high level, we have like our internal platform, all of the tools that we use to do our job internally. So customer experience, the tools that we use to run experiments, things like that. So then then we also have like the core buyer experience. So all of like the parts of the experience that we think of as like being core to the Etsy marketplace for the buyer side. And then we also have like core, the seller experience, which is like the counterpart to that, like that partnership of like all the tools that a shop owner or a seller uses to list items, to manage their shop, to fulfill orders. And then there are other teams. There's like a team that's focused on kind of like additional seller services. So we have like other platforms that are specific to our sellers, but are outside of like the core seller, like shop management experience. And so, yeah, so we have these kind of like larger group areas. And for each of those groups, we have a kind of like what we call like a trifecta. Like we have three leaders at the top. So we have someone, a group product manager, we have a product design manager, and then we have like an engineering manager. And so together, like a lot of, a lot of teams, like that is represented throughout the whole scale. So we have at that top level, we have those three individuals that work very closely to think about the work that's being done within that part of the experience, thinking about things like this, like what is our vision for this team even beyond like a year? Like there's definitely, I think like more of like the strategic thinking happens at that level. Mm -hmm. And then so within each group, then we have feature specific or like more specific definition around each area. So like, for example, on buyer experience, we're talking about all of buyer experience, but then we have teams focused on the areas that are critical that we want to focus on. So checkout is one within buyer experience or search and all of our discovery tools, for example. And so each of those teams also has that trifecta of a product manager, a designer, and an engineering manager who then, you know, there can be anywhere from one to many engineers on a team. One to many. <laughs> one to many. And also, even, even for the designers, I think that, you know, as we grow, we're starting, I think, to get to a scale where right now, I think we've, we've historically had like one designer for like a feature area. But as we grow and like those features become more complex and they need a little bit more consideration, you know, there's definitely moments where it makes sense to have more than one designer on it. And so I think we're getting to a size where, where we're starting to grow into that, which has been really interesting. I feel like that's just started to happen this year. Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, so for each team, there's there's still that trifecta. And even down to... Yeah. So like for any of this work, when we're talking about building a product or building an experience and thinking through like, what is the metric that we want to move? Understanding how we think we can do that or what the opportunities are, what the problems are with the current experience. Like the PM 
engineer, like engineers even like at that point, and the designer are all involved in that process. So like, that's really like the unit, the team unit is like how we work on a day-to-day basis is really with like your product team. Yeah. So what would you say is the ideal number of people to have on a team and work with on a day-to-day basis? Have you found that a certain number is not enough for a good collaboration? A certain number is too much confusion? Working on a specific product? Yeah. I would say like that you're working with on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that is so hard. I think it really depends on what you're working on. I know that, that probably sounds like a... It really depends on what the feature is, I think, and how much of it is what the coverage is what's needed to maintain it or to work on it. Like, yeah, sorry. It's very hard. Like I, I feel like if I gave an answer, it would not be the truth. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It totally depends on, on what it is. But I would say, yeah, I think it really depends. I think I would say like typically on average, I feel like most of our teams tend to have, you know, there's always a PM, there is always a designer there is usually an engineering manager unless maybe it is like a subset of a larger team that like maybe there's like a couple different features being worked on within the scope of like the a same like kind of feature area mm-hmm. and then anywhere from 1 to 5 engineers but then again like it's very like yeah i work on a team that is three designers and one engineer so it's it totally depends okay so so super inc- important follow-up question to this, that this is mm-hmm. something that I think we used to think was very arbitrary, but in our company and in, in our office, we've realized it's actually uh, really affecting our day-to-day workflow. Mm-hmm. Seating arrangement. How do you okay. guys, <laughs> how are you guys arranged? Where are you sitting? Yeah. So we typically arrange ourselves based on whatever your your main product team is and you think about you know, who needs to talk to who on a regular basis and trying to optimize for that. I will say though that like, and I think that sometimes that can be fluid. Like I think that depending on what you're trying to achieve, you can arrange seating in a way that like helps to build up relationships at a certain moment. If like, that's what you need to do. And then maybe it makes sense to rearrange later. If like, then you need to build up relationships with another part of the team. So like one example is, it was probably two years ago when we were smaller and the size of the BX team was like five or like, no, I think it was like three designers on all of BX. And we were, you know, we had been kind of like spread out with our product teams, but we were missing like, I think that connection with each other as like the BX designers and our opportunities to talk to each other was mostly within like our on IRC, but that was hard because we didn't really have that initial kind of opportunity to talk to each other or it was, there was, it felt like there was a barrier and Cap Watkins, he was managing design or BX at the time. And he did something that I thought was like, at the time I was like, why are we doing this? Like, why do I have to move? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but he had the three of us, the three designers on the team sit right next to each other for a period of time. And we were still arranged in a way that we were close to our product teams, but like the goal was to have us sitting next to each other. And what that did was that it definitely helped kind of like have those moments or those, those opportunities just to talk to each other. Like not yeah. even specifically about the work that we were doing, but just, you know, those informal conversations that like build up that relationship. And then 
you know, that naturally we started talking a lot more in IRC and we started like just being like, Hey, can you come over here? I want to show you a design that I'm like working on. What do you think? Like all of that stuff naturally started happening. And that only like that probably took a month or two. It was pretty instantaneous for that to happen. And then, you know, as, as needs for the team needed us to be closer to like our engineers that we were working with on a day-to-day basis, then we moved to be closer to them, but that connection had already been created. So then it was a lot easier to have those conversations on IRC or just to be like, you know, Matthew, come over here. I want to show you something or like Melissa, like, I really want to get your thought, even if they were physically further away, like that connection had been created, which was pretty amazing. Like, I'm curious, yeah, like, what do you, how do you guys arrange yourself? So we we used to be sitting like as products, meaning product designers and product managers in one room and the mm-hmm. R&D on the other room, the web team. And mm-hmm. about like, I, I think six months ago, we moved to a sitting arrangement of like the product teams sitting together. Mm-hmm. Designers, we were all separated, although we wanted to sit together. Mm-hmm. So a couple of us really kind of fought for sitting together in the same room. I was for sitting in the same room with all designers together mm-hmm. because also we are a small team of designers in a very big tech company. So we needed that kind of like design force to incorporate that design for us. I think it was too early for all of us to sit inside the product teams, but it was a company-wide decision. So we, of course, respected that. And we went and sat with the product teams. But as a result of that, we have something called Designer Thursdays, which we have a room and we sit all designers together every Thursday in a room together and work as a team of designers. And I think what you told us just now about, you know, how when designers sit together, this kind of like informal relationship was funded. So I think that's actually what happens when we started sitting together on Designer Thursdays is, you know, all of a sudden we have, we have the Slack group and it started being actually active. And people like, you know, we have our marketing designers sitting like at another floor in the, like we're on fourth floor and the marketing designers are on the 21st floor. So it's kind of like, oh, wow. that it's like really, <laughs> and it's, you have to go down the elevator and go up another kind of another set of elevators to go to the 21st. So it's very far away, but still the Slack brings it all so close together. And on a daily basis, we all just like, you know, chat in there and it became this kind of like informal relationship. And it's really, really nice. And now people actually like consulting more together and mm-hmm. it's really nice i really i really enjoy what happened there and then plus I, I hear from my designers that they have like a good relationships with their product managers so when i sit on a daily basis with them and it's like uh, it's pretty productive i guess and I, I think it's a good arrangement for now i don't know what will happen at scale but that's what we do here now yeah i'm curious how large is the design team the design team is like i am right now director of design but I'm also a part of an agile team, of a product team. And we have besides that, six more designers, four in product, three here in Israel, one in Palo Alto. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a company that we just acquired from there and she's working over there. And we have two more marketing designers. There's going to be a big shift soon, but right now that's, that's a current structure. Oh, wow. What is the relationship like? Sorry, now I'm like interviewing yeah. you guys. What is the relationship like between the marketing designers and the product designers? So marketing designers working on brand uh, mm-hmm. and marketing materials, uh, a lot of PDFs for the sales team, for clients, PR, conferences, giveaways, that kind of stuff. And the relationship 
kind of like sometimes let's say one of the marketing designers i gave her to do the blog of similar mm-hmm. way so she redesigned the blog that was a big project and we worked very close together because you know that's kind of like product design a blog so mm-hmm. and there are a lot of those, of those kind of things like for instance we have kpis on our dashboard for the clients and those kpis are being used for big media publications so mm-hmm. the marketing team sends out pdf with those kpis those widgets so how do you display a widget in print and how does it you know in web it's different and in print it's different and so we talk a lot you know it's like kind of and so the designer thursdays come to when we come together we all of a sudden find out that we're working on very like similar products sometimes and you know it's like oh you're working on widgets i'm just working on an export widget tool for for the web uh, application so it's very nice oh man yeah it's it's amazing how we have um so we have the product design team and then we also have what we call like our brand design team which sounds very similar to the roles that you're talking about for your marketing designers yeah. like yeah like those the expression of the brand outside of like the core product experience but it's still yeah. very much part of like that single experience that the customer thinks of when they think of like that brand like and you as a company yeah and how many how many marketing designers do you have what's the split oh man i what don't know the size so the split is so our brand design team i can't i don't know how large it is at this point i think it's might be around 10 and it's also split between brooklyn and berlin oh okay and yeah so that team is doing a lot of kind of like how do we think about the expression of the brand through all of our like print materials all of our like events thinking about marketing all of that which is like so critical like those yeah. are touch points and the work that they're, they're doing is amazing yeah totally yeah I want <laughs> I want the teams to be closer it's like because we're at a size where and I think that there's just a lot of work that needs to be done and you know everyone has a lot on their plate for like day-to-day stuff like yeah figuring out how to bridge the gap there or to like make those relationships stronger it's definitely something that I'm very interested in like making that stronger which is interesting like when we talk about like scaling a team like how that relationship because processes are different the and product is different but like how do you think about it as like one holistic experience it's crazy similar to the stuff we think about here as well because it's like you know how do you how do you create like a brand so we have a style guide for the product but how do you make the style guide be also like a brand guidelines that you can send mm-hmm. out to you know print and stuff like that and and how do you bring them together and if we have a living style guide on the web should the brand guidelines be there or not and how mm-hmm. do you bring them together but just so you know you know when i'm at floris floris decker like um mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know i'll put a link also to his profile and to his amazing blog, littlebigdetails.com. So Floris told me basically that you guys have like uh, on Basecamp, a group together, like the design team, right? Uh And that's what the first time that someone told me, create a group together for all the designers and I will bring designers together. So basically Floris gave me the idea for the Slack group. So that's how we got started with the Slack group over here. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, that definitely helps. So much of this is like whatever mode of communication and like being able to have like that transparency and like opportunities to collaborate on this work and to feel like a team 
is super helpful and it totally changes like over time yeah. what the best method of communicating or like the best channel and even even within those channels like the best way to, to break up the work or to think about like adding transparency like within within like slack or like irc how do you have like different groups that help have like enough focus on a specific area of the product so that designers working on similar things can have those conversations versus like also how do you like have opportunities for everyone across the team to talk to each other? Yeah. Do you guys have any sort of a daily meeting or a format for a daily update? So for daily standups or meetings, that is mostly, it totally depends on the team, like the product team, what works best for them. There's definitely teams that have daily standups. There are teams that have email versions of that. And as far as like the design team, we don't have daily standups, but to achieve being able to have transparency into all of the work that's happening and like identify moments where there's opportunities to like align on a direction or a pattern. We have two design crits that we have. We have one on a Tuesday and then one on a Thursday. And the one on Tuesday is kind of like a cross team design crit where it's about like five or seven designers across different parts of the experience. So from like seller, buyer, internal platforms get together and they kind of talk about what they're working on and ask for feedback on areas that they have questions about. And then on Thursdays, then we have our group specific crits. So an opportunity for all of the designers, let's say on buyer experience to talk to each other and to see each other's work and to get a little bit more, like they already have a lot more of like that context built in to what they're working on and the details. So in those crits, yeah, there's an opportunity to once again, like see areas of like alignment where the work that someone is doing on search, you know, they might be working on a page that they are modifying a listing card and someone else is working on a landing experience that has a listing card and making sure that like those patterns are the same. Or if there's a modification or consideration that one designer is doing, like how is that something that could be useful for the other designer working on a very similar feature? Okay, very cool. It's, it's interesting that you do both of those each week. How much time do you give to each meeting? What does it usually take? For the larger meeting on Tuesdays, it's an hour and a half. And there's around usually five designers. So we try to make sure that everyone has a decent amount of time to be able to kind of give a little bit of context and background behind the work that they're doing, where they're at, and then to ask any questions or get feedback on the areas that they are currently working on. And the Thursday meeting, it totally depends on the size of like that team. So for a team, and that one tends to be an hour, hour and a half. I feel like when it starts to go beyond an hour and a half, it becomes people start losing attention. And it's just like, it's a very yeah. long meeting. Like, And which one do you feel like provides more value? I think that they're providing slightly different value. So the first one, I think it helps to provide clarity and a little bit more transparency across teams of what's happening and what product decisions are being made and being able to identify moments where maybe there is overlap or 
moments where maybe someone's working on a pattern that could be used across another one. I think it's also for that meeting because everyone isn't super close to those specific problems, a little bit more of like a fresh eye is like super helpful in that first meeting. In the second meeting, I think because that one is with designers that are working within that same product area, the type of feedback that you're getting is a little bit more specific and there's a little bit more context that is already like just built in. And so I think that the feedback there is still extremely valuable. Like they're both very, very valuable, but valuable for slightly different reasons. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the second one is just a little bit more of getting that a little bit more specific on the needs of whatever that feature set is or like that user is compared to the previous one, the one on Tuesdays. So I want to talk a little bit about specifically the growth that you guys have experienced and how it's affected your culture. Can you say maybe the biggest change that you've felt? I think as far as culture, it's, it's interesting. I think that we've done a really good job of maintaining our culture through the growth that we've had. We strongly believe in just being like keeping it real is definitely a part of our mission and that we want to put people first in everything that we're doing. And that includes all of us, everyone that is building the products and these features. One thing that we have that I think is like really ingrained in our culture as a company is that almost like this blameless approach of Whenever there's something that goes, that is a surprise that happens in the experience or, you know, the site goes down or something, there's a big bug and there's a lot of issues. Like we have what we call postmortems and it's basically a process of being able to review and understand what happened. Not so much to say like, this was like the critical point of failure, like who did this and why, but more to understand why and to be like, this was a a surprise. Like, this is interesting. Like, this is something that we were not expecting. Like, let's understand what that surprise was. And then instead of putting blame on those individuals being like, this is an opportunity to learn and to make a better process. Before you get fired. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, like, but this is so, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. But this is, I mean, it, it sounds great, but this is so hard. You know, when, when, uh, we've had times here where someone just, you know, makes a mistake in the code and boom, site crashes the next time we release the version and mm-hmm. we have the postmortems too, but it's so hard to really stay blame free and look for like the good and the silver lining and the bad situation. <laughs> How do you guys foster that and continue to not to blame someone? Oh man, I think it is just so much a part of our culture that it's hard for me to imagine a moment where I just don't even think it's acceptable to, in a certain sense of like, you know, I think the way that we would approach it is that we have these processes and involved like set so that it's easy for us to go through this process of like, when this happens, this is how we think about it. Like as a team, like this, as a company, like this is how we approach these situations that could be very, very stressful and probably in the moment are stressful, but like that it's, it's something, yeah, it's very, it's very hard. For, like I, it's like hard for me to imagine our process and these scenarios without this sense of like, we're all working on this together. We assume best intentions, things happen, surprises happen. That's okay. 
the best thing for us to do is like, cause we want to be forward thinking, right? Like we want to make sure that we take this as an opportunity to fully understand what happened and to figure out how we can not have this happen again. Not to say like this should never ever happen again. Like things, there's always surprises like, and it's always those unknowns that we're just not aware of. So, but the more that like we foster, I think this, this approach of understanding it and learning from that and then folding that back into our process, like there's definitely a follow-up. So like I would say like through this process, it's not so much of like blaming. So like blaming the person actually doesn't, doesn't really help you long-term because then you put the blame on someone and then you think that it's fixed or you think that it's over, but being able to like work through that and then understand why and then build in those processes or those tools or that understanding so that the next time that happens, it's not a surprise and it's just part of our process now. Like, in fact, like it's definitely something that we celebrate in a sense that we have what we call the three arm sweater award that we give out every year. And so if you ever go to like our like whoopsie page, it's like an illustration of like someone crocheting a sweater, but there's like three arms and it's like, well, something went wrong. So every year we basically like give an award to the person who took down the site in the most like fantastic way possible. <laughs> <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> nice. And great. I think that that's part of that. Like that is just so much ingrained in our process. Not like, those things uncover unknowns that we were not aware of before. So it's actually an opportunity for us to be, to create a stronger and a better product and something that like, we now understand like, Oh, when this happens again, we have a solution instead of like, okay, this can't ever happen again. Yeah. It's very hard for me. Like I'm like so ingrained in it that it's like crazy to imagine a world without it. It's very, (laughs) yeah. Cool. I have a few questions and we're going to speed it up a bit and we're going to get into really like practice of a couple of things that I want to talk about. One is methodology. Do you have like some kind of like written methodology and tools that you use that you can say are a must you think for every product team, especially for designers? Oh man. I think just always try to start with the why, like really understand what you're building and why you're building it. And I think the core of that is how is this achieving a better experience for our end customers? And I think like a big part of that, like you could, you could fold out of that processes, but I think that like that process or that approach can change depending on what you're building. I mean, I think that like being able to always ask that question, why and figure out the best way to answer it, whether it is through exploratory research or, just general user research or understanding, like looking at the quantitative data, like behind like an existing feature, like that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff I think helps. But yeah, like continually just asking like, why are you making specific decisions through that whole process? Whether it's like the core feature that you're building at the very beginning, all the way to throughout that whole process, is that decision achieving your end goal? Yeah. Okay. And do you have any, anything written down or any, job to be done templates or anything that you use on a regular basis with each feature you build? So for each feature that we build, we have our defined goals, the metrics that we want to hit, like our PM works on. For a designer, for a long time we were working on, and I think this has been super helpful, is to identify at the very beginning the 
problems, strengths, and tenets to everything that you're building. So if you're building a new checkout flow, being able to say what the current issues are with the existing checkout flow, the strengths of the current like checkout flow and the tenets, like the things that you want to achieve, that has always been like super helpful at the start of a project. It also helps to add clarity and alignment with everyone else on the team. So the engineers and the PM, uh, also across teams with other designers of like, this is what I want to achieve. This is what I think are like the core tenets of like what I want to achieve and the areas that I think are problems and the areas that I think I want to maintain that are strengths of this feature. Okay. So this is like summary that you're saying of the stuff you guys are solving in each product. How do you communicate that throughout like to, to the rest of the team? Is it like written down or is it like every time you write that down and communicate like that, or is it like on a presentation, like on a Google docs or whatever? Great question. So for a lot of the stuff, when a designer starts a new feature or a new thread of work, it always starts with a Basecamp thread, a Basecamp post. So uh-huh. that's a good opportunity to write it down. Like at the beginning of that like thread for the work that you're doing, be able to start with the scope of the work, why you're doing it, your goals before you start diving into sketches or like general ideas, like first ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you have design principles that you follow? Any design principles? Let's say Intercom, I know has them. Salesforce has them. They even have them like, you know, by arrangement of, you know, priority. We don't have a formal list yet, but that is something that we're working on. Okay. Like that is definitely, I think, that, yeah. I think that we all have kind of like an internalized set of principles that we think of when building experiences that we want to achieve, but we haven't formalized that. It's not something that we have that is a part of our process as a team, but I think something that we would love to have. And yeah. I think, do you guys have a, a set of principles? So based on our latest uh, interview with Emmett Connolly, director of design of Intercom, he's like, we started working on design principles. Later on, I read the Salesforce article. So I understood that it's a thing <laughs> and people have design principles. So we started thinking about the stuff that we experienced here that were like kind of like a clash between product management and product design or also with the engineers. And mm-hmm. we started putting along like stuff that we strongly believe in that will make the flow better mm-hmm. if everybody agrees upon. So one thing Emmett Conley has said about design principles is that, that every principle has to be a principle that someone can say something about. It can't be just like, let's make all our design simple because everybody would agree. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that people will not agree on specifically, you know, sometimes. And therefore, it's something that, you know, you stand for. And so, for instance, we have one which is elegance over cuteness. So it's something that's like, if the design is too cute, it's not good. We want elegance because that's our brand. That's our kind of like brand mission. Um, Mm -hmm. It goes throughout the product. We have one for everything has to be clear. I think it's, it's, uh, I don't remember the, what we wrote you know, in the title, but it's like clarity overall, meaning if someone clicks on anything, they should exactly know how it will behave when they click it. No way that a person clicks something that he doesn't have access to in terms of like, you know, his account and then they get to this, I don't know, like locked page or something like that. Or Mm -hmm. so we'll put a lock next to it to let them know that they're clicking something they can't or anything like that. So that's like clarity. We have all kinds of stuff and it all comes from experiences that we had working in teams. 
we'll see how it goes. But um, yeah, we're just working on that right now. And like this month, we're going to present it to the rest of the product team and the engineering. So good luck to us with that. <laughs> yes, I will be very curious. I'd love to hear how, how that process goes because yes. Sure. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know and I'll share with you the design principles themselves when we have them. I'll be glad to get your feedback. I would love that. That would be great. Yeah. Because <laughs> cool. I feel like we're, we're about to embark on a very similar process. So it would be really interesting to like, yeah, see that balance between like those universal principles and things that are specific to your brand and like your product. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks. So wireframes, I know it's like a subject that a lot of people have strong opinions about your opinions on wireframes. What specifically? I'm curious, like... Because I, I'll tell you, like, every project that we had here regarding wireframes that people, someone, let's say, like, a PM did a wireframe and it got mm -hmm. passed on to the designer and then the designer, uh, you know, had to work by a set of wireframes, usually don't work. Mm -hmm. Wireframes are... As I see it, they kill productivity, they kill communication, they kill the agile methodology because they create a waterfall. Mm -hmm. But I think also just on, on an, an ego level too, it kind of, there can be like a feeling of infringement on someone else's territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, and I think it's a problem that we have here in Israel in general, where a lot of even UX researchers create wireframes, pass them onto designers and say, okay, make this sketch beautiful, okay? You know, and, and, and mm -hmm. therefore one of the design principles that I tried to pass, and it's the only design principle that I presented to our VP of product and, and a couple of other of the designers and team that they did not agree on, is the principle of not having wireframes at all and only to create sketching sessions that are, you know, with the PM together. That mm -hmm. I wanted to do that, but what do you think about that? It's interesting. So at Etsy, we don't really have a team or someone outside of the product designer creating the wireframes. Like that is part of the product designer's role. And it's mostly you work with the product design or the product manager and engineers. Usually you get into a room and maybe you do like sketches. Uh, like that's probably like yeah. the level of like trying to get to like, what are we trying to achieve? Like yeah. what are the requirements? And initially doing, like, yeah, you could totally get in a room, do some sketches, or you do sketches on a piece of paper and you're able to get those rough ideas. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I think we also, with our CSS framework, with our web toolkit, it allows us to work really, really fast to be able to, I don't want to say skip that part of the process, but I, I think like... It's kind of, you understand the hierarchy of the page or the product, like what you're wanting to build and then trying to use whatever, like really like you use whatever tool or method that like helps you achieve clarity on where you want to go as a team and understanding like if that means doing sketches and that's like a level of fidelity that then you can then take into production, like actually starting to build using this CSS framework like as fast yeah. as possible. Cause you already have answers to that too. Like what the button should look like, what the type should look like yeah. generally, like what the grid is like the spacing, all of that. Yeah. I think, I think we typically assume that that part of the process or what that is trying to achieve is just baked into the designer's role and part of the collaborative process with your product team. Like however you want to communicate that is up to each designer. Okay, but it's at the designer's hands only. Yeah, 
I would say it's definitely like it's expected that that's part of the designer's role. Like whether a APM is doing some initial sketches just to like get the idea across, that's totally fine. But I think that like the expectation is that it's a collaborative process and like the designer will then be able to work with that and like have that conversation around like, Oh, that's interesting that you, we've made this decision. What about this consideration? And like to be able to, to work forward for something that everyone feels good about and to be able to have that conversation around it. Cool. So, um, I have a few questions just about hiring process. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Do you interview? Yes. Yes. So what are your like most precious tips about the interviews, about questions, specific questions to ask or what to look for? That's interesting. I think the most critical things to try to get at. So there's one understanding what specific needs or skill sets you're looking for, for that specific role. So there's that being able to communicate that with anyone who is interviewing yeah, the way that we do interviews for designers at Etsy is, once again, that has been an iterative process. We've changed it over time. Mm-hmm. And we try to like, we have like at the very, very beginning, a portfolio review. So everyone who's going to do an interview throughout the day comes at the very, very beginning and has like a portfolio interview that the candidate kind of talks through a couple projects that they've worked on, the process, it allows everyone to kind of have that built-in context that they can then continue conversations with the candidate afterwards mm-hmm. for like specific areas or specific topics that they're wanting to get more information around. And I think that totally depends on who that is. I feel for in general for design candidates, there's one, do they have good visual design skills? Like that is like a, a really important thing. Uh-huh. How do they think about building product experiences? How do they think about the problem? How do they approach solving the problem? What is critical in that process? Like what do they identify? So how do you find that out? That's a great question. So I feel like we find it out in a couple ways. One, before we even get to interviews, we have two or three like phone screens before. And during the second phone screen is really digging into a specific process or a specific project and really understanding the process that went behind it. And I think that's like the initial place where we have a sense of like, does this candidate, like, how do they think about this problem? What type of steps do they take before, you know, starting with like an idea of what they want to do to execution, to launching a feature or, and also like the follow-up, like how do they think about what happens after that. Mm -hmm. Like, is it an iterative process through that process? Like, how are they defining like the problems or the needs? How are they thinking about it as a, a user flow? So how are they thinking about when they're working on a specific part of the product? Are they thinking about where the user is coming from and where the user is going to and thinking about it in a slightly larger context in the interview process? For designers, like we have the portfolio review. We also have what we call kind of like a UX exercise. So in one of the interview slots, one or two designers will basically work with the candidate on a UX problem. And it's totally a whiteboarding session. Like 
just like a very pie in the sky idea of like some feature that we want to build and going through the process of like, how would you define what the problems are? What do you want to solve? Like what is a part of this user flow? Mm -hmm. And then from that understanding, what are some of the considerations like through that process or moments where it might get a little hairy in that process? And I think like for that, a lot of it is not so much looking for the perfect answer, but like how do they think about the problem? And also how collaborative are they? Is this a conversation that is happening? Because that is so critical when you're, you know, as a team, you need to be able to work together on things and to like think through problems and to think about how some feature that you're working on in part of the experience relates to another part of the like experience somewhere else. And like, yeah, continually thinking about it as a, a larger holistic experience than just single products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, yeah, like we do the product whiteboarding exercise. And then we also do like a CSS exercise to just kind of get it more of like the technical like side of it. And once again, that's mostly just understanding where their current skill set is. For all of these things, it's definitely not a pass or fail. It is just getting a better gauge on where they're at yeah. and understanding like how how that will work within the existing team or the team that they will be potentially working with okay yeah does that answer your question yeah i mean there's a lot of like over here we have a a pretty shorter loop in order for like people to get into the system and one thing i talked about with uh joel khalifa from digital ocean was you know about hiring he said first of all it's all about the hires. So the people that you have with you, it's like, it's all about the hiring. And that's why I know in companies like Etsy and, you know, DigitalOcean and even Facebook and like the big companies, in order to get inside, you have to go through a lot of like interviews and a lot of kind of like drills in order to get inside, which makes kind of like a, a big kind of, it's a period of time for anyone looking for a job that mm-hmm. can create between two to three or even up to six months of interviewing before they get a job, even if they're very, very talented. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to find out what's the best way to optimize and one way to make it shorter, mm-hmm. you know, to make the process shorter, but also how to still keep the quality of people, you know, the filter is as good as it can be. So mm-hmm. yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> it's an ongoing process of video writing on that. Yeah, it definitely is an ongoing process. I think we recently had a really great kind of like workshop with some engineers on the team that used to work at Google who were very involved in the interview process there. And one thing that they talked about, like when thinking about the interview process is like identifying what questions that you're wanting to answer. And like, as far as tips on the interview process, like understanding how a lot of the times it's not like, getting answers that are a yes or no question or that have like a very clear answer, but like, it's all about like, how does someone approach a problem? And is that something that like, how do they think about those problems in a way that will that work out well, or like, will that set them up for success in the context of like where they're going to work? And one thing they talked about was like what they called mapping the potato, which I thought was a really interesting concept of like, you know that you want to understand like, you know, what is their skill level for problem solving? So working with them in a way to get, basically you're continually trying to like ask them questions or push them until they get to a place where they're like, I don't know about that. Like that's, <laughs> that's basically like what, okay. like what is their boundary of knowledge? Yeah. Which I think is a really interesting concept and in that 
it's not so much of trying to like see did they answer all the questions right but more of like where's like their sphere of knowledge and even like trying to get a sense of like they're really good at x y and z this is kind of like where their skill level is mm -hmm. and more to understand like how that will work within the context of whatever their job is what you want them to achieve or like how you want them to grow also yeah nice nice all right cool so Magera, thanks so much for being with us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And do you have any more shout outs? Any, anything to plug? Oh, man, I don't at this moment. I can't think of anything. We're hiring at Etsy. So oh, if you thing. want to join, that, that's actually a very big thing. Yes. <laughs> so if you want to join the design team at Etsy, go to etsy.com slash careers. Cool. Actually, cool. Yeah. Nice plug. All right. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was really nice talking to you. And thank you for everything. Really insightful. Thank you. everybody, what's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So I just wanted to let you know that first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders and that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.